You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. Visit ExodusOutdoorGear.com today and enter the discount code 9FINGERS, that's the number 9, followed by the word FINGERS, to save $20 off your trail camera. Now, hopefully everybody had a great weekend. I had a great weekend, kind of. It was until Saturday where... I did the one thing that an archer who hunts with a a bow hunter who hunts with a a compound bow should absolutely never do, and that is dry fire your bow. And it wasn't just any bow, it was my brand new only shot three arrows out of it previous bow. And uh, it was my prime logic, and dude, I feel like a total douchebag because that was the first time in 22 years of archery that I've ever dry fired a bow. And man, uh, string broke, and the cam, one of the cams is damaged. I don't know anything about the limbs yet. I'm probably just gonna send it back into the manufacturer, have them look at it, and then from there uh you know i'll have to pay the price when it comes to uh you know purchasing the new cams the new string and potentially the new limbs if that those are are damaged as well but uh like i said i think uh, they look all right a lot more to find out about that but that's just a, a reminder that when you are setting up your bow tweaking it 
Um, I was at an archery shop and I was in the shooting lane and I shot, uh, I shot two arrows. I took it out. I had them adjust the, the limb stops on the cams. Uh, he put in a kisser button and a peep sight and a D loop. And I went back and I shot an arrow out of it. And I noticed that the peep sight was a little out of place. So I slid it up a little bit before he serviced it in. And I'm telling you right now that, uh, that is one thing I kind of always do in my shot sequence is I'll clip in. I will like adjust my peep sight just a little bit. Then I'll draw back and, you know, I'll line up my peep with my sight. And I had a lapse of judgment, a, a lapse of focus. And I, you know, put, I did what I always do draw back, put my kisser button in, put the string on my nose, line up my sight through my peep. And instead of coming back down, I pulled the trigger and uh, the rest is history. So I feel like a complete douchebag right now. And, uh, you know, a lot of people probably wouldn't share this information because of the whole embarrassment. But I feel this is a great opportunity for everybody to know that when you are working on a bow, and we have to remember that the amount of energy created by some of these compound bows is enough to send an arrow fast enough through a living animal and sometimes a big living animal. So, you know, a lot of people think, oh, well, it's just a bow. It's really not going to hurt you. Well, I got a a welt on my hand and wrist that uh, contradict that. So, Please, 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 please be careful. And when you are tuning a bow and working on a bow and shooting a bow, you need to be focused on shooting a bow and working on a bow and nothing else. I was distracted. Um, I had a, a lapse of uh, a lapse of focus, and that is what happened. Uh, so please, don't let that happen to you. Learn from my experience, and uh, we will uh, we'll go from there. I'm excited, honestly, to get that bow set up because it was shooting pretty sweet i mean when you i don't know about you guys but when you get a bow in your hand especially a new one that you're really excited to shoot you draw it back you shoot the first couple arrows out of it and it's just it's not very loud there's no hand shock and that tells you that the the energy that is going through that bow is is very efficient man that's a very good feeling. So there's that. Now, on today's podcast, we're going to be talking with a guy I've met I met several years ago. His name's Andy Orr. And Andy out of Iowa, just like me, he is a hardcore whitetail hunter, bow hunter, just like me. Uh dude dude loves land. So he is also kind of a land consultant. So if you're looking to uh, improve the habitat on your property, uh, what Andy and his company does is they will go into it. They'll do some hinge cutting. They'll build the ponds. They'll uh, plant food plots and, and help you design a farm that will, you know, accomplish the goals, uh, whatever those goals are, whether it's to hold more deer or to grow bigger bucks. Uh, uh, Andy, that's what Andy's company does. So today we're going to talk a little bit about his company, what he does, how he does it, and then we're just going to BS for a, a while as well. But before we get into that podcast, reminder, Exodus 
trail cameras. They are badass. You need to look into them if you haven't already. Uh, go to exodusoutdoorgear.com and check out their their uh, new trail cameras, right? They have the Lift 2 and the Track. So you can save $20 on every trail camera that you purchase by entering the discount code 9FINGERS. That's the number 9 followed by the word FINGERS. And I believe, I don't think they want me saying this, but uh, hopefully they don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> but if they're running a discount, I'm pretty sure that you can use my code on top of their discount and uh, save even more money. Don't take me to the bank on that. Uh, they might uh, they might have fixed that, but uh, I hope Chad doesn't call me because I said this. Anyway, think about that when you're when you're purchasing. But again, ExodusOutdoorGear.com. Take a look at all their trail cameras. They're badass, and you will not be disappointed. So enough of the embarrassing stories, enough of the whoring out. Let's get into today's podcast with my buddy, Andy Orr. Mr. Andy Orr, how the hell are you, man? I'm doing good, Dan. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, man. I tell you what, last weekend I put my mineral out. I didn't set any trail cameras up yet, but I put my mineral stations out and I'm, I'm watching the crops grow taller and taller every day and that for me is just a sign that there's other things in the woods that are growing and growing every day and it just gets me fired up for fall man how about you yep yep they're putting on starting to put on horns you know where you're starting to see some velvet bucks that actually you could see from 100 or 200 yards away that hey that's a buck and be putting on good horn and uh time to start hanging trail cameras and you can start to tell you know which bucks are a little six pointer and which bucks have uh you know huge bases and it's going to turn into something and start to even recognize some of the bucks that you're familiar with maybe absolutely it's exciting like you said and also i don't know about you but it also kind of freaks me out because i know okay now it's like the clock has started <laughs> right and in, in, in the winter time and you know in february oh it's all just it's all just a dream some yeah. some day in the future we'll be bow hunting again but once uh once the corn starts to get a foot tall then you realize Oh my gosh. Yeah. I have so many things that I want to do and which ones am I going to try and get accomplished? And you got to, you got to plant food plots. I mean, you're a food plot guy, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. I love, uh, hunting food plots, love planting them and whatnot. Um, I do an awful lot of fall planting of food plots. I don't do a ton of spring planting stuff. Um, I haven't had on the smaller plots. I, I really haven't had great luck getting either corn or beans to survive and just not get torn apart by deer. So, we plant a lot of plots in the fall, a lot of stuff, the mixes that I make and, uh, you know, turnip type blends and um, tetraploid ryegrass type blends, stuff like that. And we're going to get into a little bit of that today, but um, before we, you know, get into the meat and potatoes of this uh, BS session, how did your mm-hmm. 2017 season go? I went really good. Um, I was able to kill a buck that I was familiar with, a six-year-old buck, um, that I called John Wayne and I filmed uh, my hunting partner, uh, him killing a great seven year old buck, just a giant. Um, those will both be on the deer society here coming up. And then I went over and filmed Colton Hall, uh, killing a great buck on his property. So for me that, you know, anytime I get a chance to be involved in three, three bucks going down on camera, that's a good year. And, uh, saw a lot of deer and had a lot of fun hunting the food plots and then deep in the timber and just a, a good year overall. 
got a lot of hunting in and saw a lot of deer. And then finally, uh, was it November? I think I killed my buck on November 14th. And, uh, you know, that's, that's getting pretty late. So I had a yeah. good long season and then finally, uh, had some success in the middle of November. So really good season. Right. I tell you what, man, there's a, there comes a time for me, like my, my vacation started on, I, I want to say the fourth or the fifth this year. And I was tagged out by the third and the year before that was two days hunting and I was tagged out in Iowa. So those early season, or I want to say early season, but those early rut vacation uh, hunts where you kill are awesome. But then you start getting into like the 11th, the 12th, the 13th, even a little bit longer. And there still may, may be some movement, but like I get, a, I start second guessing everything at that point because it's like, am I, what am I doing wrong? Because by now I should have something on the ground or I should uh, have right. something patterned or, or whatnot. Then it gets a little crazy. Right. That's, that's the tough time. And when it starts getting into that window where I was right on the doorstep of, you know, full lockdown. And that's a frightening time for, you know, an Iowa bow hunter, or I guess any, uh, any state bow hunter, when you yeah. know that those bucks are now they're they're hanging tight with does off in little points and draws and weird spots. And that's a scary time. So I, I was really happy to, I caught a buck doing just what I thought he might be, you know, what I was hoping I might catch it, which was, uh, he was, you know, off a doe and was just covering ground through the timber looking and I hit him with the, uh, extinguisher and he freaking finished right to the tree kind of thing. I mean, he was in between does and very, very receptive to the call. So yeah, I love really catching lucky, lucky in that way. Yeah. I love catching deer. Uh, cause that's how I killed my deer this year. He was, he came into the picture uh, he he kind of was looking at these does. He scent checked them. I I don't think the does were quite in heat yet. I hit I hit him with the one just one, and he turned around and walked right to me. And uh, that's what I love. Great, I love it? when deer do that. It's just so cool. Yeah, yeah. When they're on the program, it's just yeah. amazing. You know, you can go a number of years without having you know that perfect response out of a buck like that but it's pretty amazing when it goes down and goes down correctly absolutely now when you go in to a let's say let's use last year as an example when you go into a season are you do you have a hit list put together or are you more of a well let's just see what shows up kind of guy um i would say it's a combination of both for me i don't have uh, you know, a, a large property that I own or anything like that. I'm spread out on a number of different properties. I have a small leases and, and several handshake properties. And so I've got deer in mind, you know, depending on what the cameras have told me, if I've got good pictures, I've got some bucks that I'm real interested in. But at the same time, I'm always, you know, kind of aware that uh, a ghost buck can show up anytime a buck that I'm not familiar with. And, yeah. you know, if I can, judge him on his feet that he, you know, Hey, this is an old mature buck or that I'm interested in. And he, and he gets me wound up at the time. Um, it, it's, it's pretty rare that I go into the season. Like having just one or two bucks that I'd be willing to kill. I mean, generally there's, there's a number of them that I'm like, Hey, if I saw that deer or right. for, for me, I really, really love old, uh, bucks. And sometimes when they're, you know, when I spot them in the woods and depending on their behavior and how they're acting and, and, and just, if they come in like they're just king shit of the entire woods and they own everything, uh, sometimes that really gets me going. And I might choose to shoot a buck that, you know, I, I didn't really think from the trail cameras that, you know, he was going to be a buck that I would be willing to shoot. But 
Right. Then you see him in person, and you realize, holy cow, you know, this dude is just a buck stud, and and uh, he looks awesome, and I want to put him on the wall. Yeah, and eat yeah. That's and that's something that's crazy because a lot of people, you know, they they talk about, oh, you got to shoot the mature buck, you got to shoot the mature buck, but. What pe- a lot of people don't realize is is that there is a difference between the dominant buck in the woods and a mature buck because sometimes the dominant buck can be younger than the the uh, you know more mature bucks and especially yeah. especially when that buck you see that buck in velvet and you're you're getting trail camera pictures of him all summer and he does his body may not look big but then you see him from the stand in late October or November and he's just swole you know he looks like that pit bull coming mm-hmm. through the woods dude i love yeah. that i know it it drives you crazy and like you said the the trail cameras you know for the most part they'll really tell you a lot but there's times they just don't convey as a buck grows, you know, his, his head, his face, his neck, everything grows with him. And so you can get these trail camera pictures and you're thinking, you know, that's probably, I don't know, maybe he's three or four and he looks like a pretty decent buck. And then, like you said, you see him in person and he's a foot longer than you thought he was <laughs> and, and just a giant, you know, and, and, and you realize immediately, oh my gosh, you know, that's a buck that I, I definitely be willing to harvest. And, yeah. and of course it depends a little bit for me anyway, I'm sure it does for you too. It depends on your mood a little bit that day, you yeah. know, sometimes you're, just in a in a little bit more of a mood that hey that that big nine pointer looks awesome today and he's putting yep. on a show and yep you know so it, it, a lot a lot of factors involved but yeah and that's something that I've never really thought about but last year for me was a perfect example where I walked into this property this buck came in you know he looked great he you know he kind of ruled the roost when he walked in and I felt like that was a good buck now. After shooting him and walking up on him, I realized he wasn't a mature buck and he wasn't the best, you know, uh, probably the either the dominant buck either. But I felt like uh-huh. that day I wanted to kill something and uh, that buck was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, it can happen for sure. And um, like, like I said, for me, I just try and I don't know, your, your goal changes through the years and where I happen to be in my particular hunting uh evolution at the moment is i just really really like killing older bucks and i can perceive that you know hey this is a a five or six year old buck or or older then i get awful excited pretty quick yeah definitely definitely like those uh the grizzled face the the face you know how they get the extra colors in their face going on and they start throwing kickers and stickers and trash off their rack and all that stuff i just I, i really get excited about it so now let me ask you this: How long did it take you, as a bow hunter, to sit in a tree stand and be able to identify deer as they're coming in, and maybe even coming in quickly because you may have rattled or you called, and these bucks are hauling ass in, and you got to make a game time decision whether or not you want to sh- shoot them based off of age class right. alone, right? How long has it? How long did it take you to properly be able to feel like? field judge deer yeah that's a good question um i i think it came from uh you know literally uh having a buck come in you know you know he's a big eight pointer he's he's good and shooting him and then getting to him after i shot him and realizing holy cow you know he's really this is just a doe with a small eight point rack on it you know right. just like learning my lesson by 
by making, uh, I wouldn't say mistakes, but definitely by getting my eyes open and realize, you know, wow, these things can really fool you. Um, can be very tough at times, especially, you know, like you were saying, if they're all swole up or bristled up or putting on a show, they look immediately look, uh, you know, yep. 40 pounds heavier. Yep. <clears throat> so I think it just, you know, numerous, uh, uh, uh miscalculations of, of the size of the actual size of a buck combined with just maybe, you know, numbers of times in the tree and finally starting to really calm down a little. Yeah. Number of years, just so excited to be in a tree and see deer that your adrenaline kicks in, you know, you really can get super, super excited and your judgment kind of goes halfway out the window and and then you start, I don't know, over time, feel like somewhere around maybe the eight-year mark or 10-year mark or something, I just started really calming down and like, you know, all right, let's see. You know, I was willing to wait more, yeah. uh, willing to let let opportunities possibly pass at times. You know, I, had, I started having encounters where I'd like have a big buck come in and I didn't shoot and I was a little bit at a loss. Like, why didn't I shoot? I'm not really sure. I just, I just didn't. I don't know. I just, I was really enjoying watching what was going on and, I suppose that's just part of the process of right. the evolution of, of uh, being a, a whitetail boner, I guess, because right. I, I seem to see a lot of people go through the same thing. What is your goal every year as far as caliber of deer that you're looking for? Because you mentioned old, but how old? Well, like I said, with with the properties that I'm able to hunt on right now and whatnot, I I it always relates to, like, I would love to be able to say, hey, I am – going to hold off until i see a 10 year old buck that's <laughs> just a giant old crusty you know he's just got like one eye and all busted up you know <laughs> i would love i would love to say that but i'm just not in that place unfortunately and my cameras basically prove that for me you know right. what, what and so that kind of helps me leading into the season but for where things sit for me now i'm i'm always going to be very happy uh with a five-year-old buck a buck i can tell is hey that's not just He's not just a four-year-old that just reached his prime. Uh, he's getting over the hill a little bit, getting older. I uh, love six-year-old, seven-year-old bucks when I can bump into them. Um, it's not it's not very common. Um, but when I do, I mean, you know, that's for me, that's just awesome. I love seeing – I want to see the oldest bucks I possibly can. I'm just fascinated with them. I'm sure you are, too. They're just awesome, man. I mean, when you see a buck that's – of an unknown age and you can just tell that is not a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old he's like something just out of this world i mean you know he's just he's just an ancient and sadly for me anyway on on most of the properties i hunt um i think that you know the cw i'm sorry the uh, ehd outbreaks that we had fairly recently i think and, and I've talked to a lot of my friends about this that are serious bow hunters, and um, they tend to agree with me that we had a really serious incident with EHD around here, and I think it took out an age class of bucks that um, nobody really knew what they were or how old they are. Because, I mean, the fact of the matter is, you go out and knock down a 12-year-old buck, he doesn't. it's not like a tree. You can't cut him in half and say, oh, well, he's got 12 rings, so yeah. I'm pretty sure he's 12-year-old. It's not like that. You're just guessing like, oh, he's like really cool and old. And so you think, well, he's six or something. I don't know. But I mean, I think we lost an age class of those really, really old, old ultimate warriors that were out there. And uh, I just, they're just not really back yet. There aren't any eight, nine, 10, 11. You know, I talked to Sam Kalora at Mrs. Dopey about this. 
he's got a doe on his on his place there that's twenty three years old. Yeah. And she just trucking along like the rest of them. She might have a couple extra hip bones here and there, but other I mean, other than that, she looks exactly the same as the rest of them. She's twenty three. Yeah. He's got the ear tags to prove it. Yeah. I mean, so I'm just left just flabbergasted, like what what are these things even capable of, you know? Could there literally be, you know, on the right farm, could there be a 15 or a 17-year-old white-tailed buck walking around? Yeah, I would I, I, you know. I would assume that those scenarios are possible with proper nutrition, you know, just like what we're going to talk about here in a little bit, you know, food, mm-hmm. water, cover, no pressure, I feel, and, you know, winners, when, you know, when you run into a, a cup, a couple low winters or, you know, winters where there's great food, like let's say two, what was it? Two winters ago, we hardly had any snow here in Iowa. It was really mild. And then I don't know about you, but on the trail camera side of things, I saw a direct result in antler growth because of that mild winter. Yeah. Yeah. They just didn't have to get their bodies all the way down there where there was just no, no, nothing left. And then they've got to rebuild back up to where they can even start to grow antler worth of hoot. Yep. So, yeah. So you're looking, you know, your your goal is obviously uh, maturity level. Now, kind of fast forwarding. Yeah, in- yeah. Five to six year old bucks get me really excited. I don't get overly carried away with. I, I mean, I haven't measured a deer. Uh, I, I killed a 227 inch deer in 2009. Okay. And I haven't measured a deer since him. I I can't really tell you why. It just I don't know. Just doesn't. It's just not doing it for me right now. I, I don't really don't care i I want to try and judge are they older are they do they have some character things like drop times and stickers and stuff like that i love that color in their face i just don't measure them anymore so that doesn't really that doesn't really factor in it doesn't get me too i'd much rather have a a heavy beefy mass monster that's 140 (laughs) inches than i would 165 (laughs) inch three-year-old that has spindly long times you know i love the bulk and just that when you look at them and you're just like, you know, what what stories could that dude tell? Yeah, you know? yeah. I tell Love you what, that. I had a the deer I shot not uh, in 2017, but in 2016. Um, he was a brute, right? He was probably a four year old, but he was had a huge body. He might have been five, who knows? But uh-huh. I took him to the taxidermist, and based off the measurements, the taxidermist was like. Hey man, I got a special order uh, form from Canada because his front front end and neck are so big that the regular forms aren't going to fit him. So I got, <laughs> that, awesome. and you know, I got a little swollen pride from that because I, I oh, yeah, you know, yeah. I, yeah, this buck here, he he needed a special form. Now he's he's nothing to brag about in the antler department, but. You know, and then in 2012, I shot a, a buck that was definitely 300 pounds. And those, when you can, when you take your trophy picture and the buck makes a 230 pound man look small, that is, yeah. that's money, man. Yeah. I, even the feeling of walking up to them. I oh, mean, yeah. when you walk up to those animals, I always call it, you know, it's like they got an extra foot of body. They're, they're <laughs> just an extra foot. You walk up and you're like, why in the. You know, this thing is walking around in the woods while I'm sneaking in the dark. This thing could freaking pound me into the dirt like a nail. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just, they're really, really impressive when they have that just massive, massive body size and awesome animals. So 
with all that said, do you have like, is there a buck that maybe, maybe, you know, he's alive. Maybe you don't know he's alive this year that you're really looking forward to hunting. Um, yeah, there's two, I guess there's two of them. Yeah. There's a buck on uh, one of my properties I call Reinhardt that, but first picture I ever got him, he looked just like a, uh, like a, a 3d target. And I was <laughs> laughing about it. I was calling Reinhardt, but since then he's grown and thrown a bunch of stickers and kickers and stuff. And he was a beautiful five-year-old last year. I mean, just a great looking deer, uh, would have shot him if I had the chance. Never saw him during daylight, during hunting season. I hunted him a number of times, uh, a few times with my kids, which are always, we're sitting in the shadow hunter and they're laughing and eating granola bars and everything else. But still, we, I gave him a good shot and never saw him during hunting season. And then uh, there's a buck I call Blockhead on one of my other farms. It's, it was a big five-year-old 10-pointer, same thing, and except I, I don't, I'm not sure if I would have shot him, but I guess it would have depended on the scenario. But I was hoping I would maybe not get a shot at him because I know he's going to be even bigger this year. Big, wide, straight 10-pointer, just, you know, heavy mass. But I, I'd love to see either one of those deer. Just That becomes another part of it is seeing deer that you know. It's just yeah. hilarious to me because I can remember my early days bow hunting so clearly, you know, just being just stunned and shocked to see a, a, a mature buck of any kind. And now, we, you know, we've come to this place where, you have a buck come walking through the woods and you throw the binocs up and you know exactly who that deer is. You've got 720 trail camera pictures of him and you burn video of him and you saw him when he was in velvet, you know, and just to be able to start to put together those pieces of the story is really, that's pretty exciting. And I'm just reaching that level with my, my bow hunting and video stuff, uh, reaching the level where, you know, knowing individual deer is, is something I can sort of do. Uh, and that relates mostly to the properties I have. I have, a lot of landowners I work for that, you know, they, they know two dozen bucks on their property, uh, just almost on a firsthand basis, you know, they've got millions of pictures of them, and, but unfortunately I don't have quite that ground yet, but I'm, I'm definitely working in that direction. For sure. And that's one thing that helps a guy for me, it's always good to know what deer are in the area based off your trail camera intel. And so you can identify them just by the rack, right, when they're coming through the woods because bodies change, obviously, from summer to fall. And that mm-hmm. that three-year-old, uh, that no-neck three-year-old that you know you don't want to shoot starts getting swollen. And then you're like, oh, God, yeah. here comes a four-year-old. But you look at his antlers and you go, hey, man, that's George. George is a three-year-old. I'm not going to shoot him. And then you get the opportunity to watch, you know, a beautiful three-year-old walk by your stand uh, and just use that that encounter to, you know, prepare for the next one. And and when mm-hmm. I don't have that, like over the past couple of years, um, just because of work and family and just less time dedicated to hunting, unfortunately, that those kind of scenarios seem to be going away for me. And it, it really frustrates me because I, I want to know every deer that's in the woods. Yeah, <laughs> that's the goal for sure. Yep. It takes a number of cameras, you know, and then it takes uh, quite a battle plan too. Yeah. Work with the guys on that all the time, uh, trying to get them to understand that, hey, you cannot simply go out on 80 acres and put out 12 cameras and just drive around every two weeks or a week and, and pull cards on them and it just doesn't work like that i mean you're absolutely detonating your farm you're creating such a shock wave of human intrusion that 
it's bad news. I mean, it's really, really destructive. Um, I knew a guy in Illinois that had 44 reconnex cameras on one 220-acre farm. Yeah. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, there's there's just no way you can run all those cameras and check all those cameras and not have a massive, massive human footprint. Yeah. Um, and so that, that, that getting, getting a system involved where you understand, hey, I can come up the east side of this property and then angle in slightly, but I don't want to go more than a hundred yards because I'm starting to get into bedding and that's where I'm going to put my mineral site and put my camera or whatever, you know, right. however, whatever your system is. We run a lot of camera. I'm sure you do too. We run a lot of cameras where, uh, I'll, I'll put a camera up and say the first of July, uh, that's on the way to one of my tree stands. It might be a hundred or 150 yards away. I don't like putting them really, really close to them, but yeah say it's a hundred yards away, but it's on the, on the, on the route that I sneak into one of my tree stands on. Well, then I won't touch that camera or be anywhere, you know, in the vicinity until I actually on October, whatever, let's say I go in there on October 5th. When I first go in there to hunt that stand, well, then obviously I pull that card and try and get all the intel off it. And from then on through the season, you can pull a card on when you're going by it, but otherwise you just, you know, intrusion is just so destructive that, So let's talk about, um, you know, because you film for a show called The Deer Society, uh, and we'll talk yes, about sir. that in a little bit, but let's talk about what you do for your main job. Right. So um, I design farms for guys. Um, for a while, I was doing full-blown hinge cutting was the, the bulk of what we were doing, and we still do a lot of that. Um, but what I do for guys is, you know, let's say they've got a 200-acre farm, and they're telling us a lot, you know, what can we do to make our farm better for deer hunting? And so I'll go in and start to try and understand that farm, um, you know, uh, with Google Earth images and by putting boots on the ground until I understand what's there and what the tree quality is and, you know, what we can do as far as any logging, um, how to design that farm into uh, a farm that's going to produce as many mature bucks as possible and let them hunt them as effectively as possible. The, the, the goal being to create a system that they can use from the get-go that, you know, includes everything from their access routes all the way to where the tree stands go, where the food plots go, where the ponds go, where the hinge cutting goes, whether we're going to log any of it or change any of it or put in road systems, um, basically to try and uh, create, you know, the best possible system that allows them to hunt those bucks and kill them as effectively as possible and grow them, you know? So, yeah. um, uh, starting it from that, from that framework and then trying to understand <clears throat> every variable that's involved and what they're, it, it all also has to be on a completely custom basis because every client is different in terms of what they want. But the goal being to create the, the best system I can for deer hunting on that farm and save them as much money in the possible, in the process as possible. So they don't waste a bunch of resources, you know, Oh, I'm going to put in, 50 acres of CRP or something and just, you know, you can really, you can really burn a lot of money on this doing it quick or, you know, quick. So the goal being, you know, Hey, let's, let's do it from the beginning with a planned system so that we don't waste any resources. Gotcha. So when, let's say I owned a property and I said, Andy, man, Mm -hmm. I want, I want to, I want to change my property. I want to kill big bucks every year. What, what are some of the first things that you would tell me or, uh, any conversations that we would have, you know, to determine whether or not e- either you're a good fit for me or I'm a good fit for you. Right. Well, I mean, I, I, from the beginning, I'm going to try and understand, you know, 
what's your method of hunting deer? Are you a bow hunter? Are you a gun hunter? That's going to determine partially how we lay out the farm. Um, you know, are, how do you feel about logging? Do you want any of these trees removed? If, if that became something we might recommend, um, what are your goals in the long run as far as uh, whitetails, as far as, you know, what you want, maybe what you want to harvest and what you're trying to achieve? Are you, do you have a family of six and you want to teach everyone to hunt or are you a lone guy that just goes out there and wants to try and kill giant mature whitetails or, you know, where, what is your fork? Where, where, where are you coming from? <clears throat> and then, uh, um, you know, maybe talk about budget, what you're looking for as far as on the farm, what you might be willing to spend um, to try and create some of this stuff. Some of this, are you going to be interested in hinge cutting or, uh, you just want to leave the farm as it is and try and understand, you know, what, what your goals are. I need to understand what your goals are from kind of from the get go. So that I know where we're coming at the farm, you know? Right. So let's say my goal is I want to have a farm that holds more deer with a higher quality of buck, right? An older age class mm-hmm. of buck. So what's Shocker. the yeah. every single client <laughs> I have wants. <laughs> and oh and you got you gotta throw this third one in. And I don't want my neighbors to shoot them. Right, right. Because that's, that's in there too. Right. Does does anybody ever say to you, I mean, because there's people out there who probably just don't understand, but if I said to you, Hey, I want to shoot a two hundred inch buck, can you make that happen? What's like, do you get people contact you and, and tell you a number that they're looking for? Like from a, from a score wise? Yes, it is. It is joked about and bantered about all the time with the 200 inch deer thing. And of course I always, you know, it's, it's both hands raised like, Hey, 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 you know, I can't promise you that you're going to get to, you know, especially depending on the state. I mean, some States just don't have the nutrition and the genetics to even hope for that. Um, happening to live in Southern Iowa, you know, if it's somebody that's talking to me in Southern Iowa, I still can't, you can't promise that your farm's going to develop a 200 inch deer. Um, if you follow everything I can, you know, I can possibly recommend and and try and achieve all those goals. Uh, you stand a really, really good chance of at some point you're going to have, you know, either a 200 inch deer or a 190 or something that's going to really get your full attention and be the kind of deer that you've been dreaming of as a, as a, let's say a lifetime achievement or whatever buck type thing. And, but like I tell guys, you know, that might be two years and it might be eight years and it might be 15. It's just, they're, you know, those 200 inch deer are not commonplace. They don't, nobody really knows where they show up and they're kind of like mushrooms. They just, they appear (laughs) where they appear. And then you, then, then you focus on them and see if you, if you can harvest them, you know, but yeah, absolutely. So we've had an, I can tell, I can tell you this, we've had an awful lot of really big deer. One of the farms I just did in Missouri this year had two 200 inch deer show up on it this year. Uh, one got hit by a car and one got poached. Sadly, Jesus. he was really, Oh, he was just, he was real. I was really bummed. He was really bummed. Just that's not the kind of thing you want to hear. That's just terrible, terrible news for him because he'd been waiting, you know, really waiting for a, a deer of that caliber show up and here there was two of them. Yeah. Two beautiful, beautiful bucks. And I tell you what, but, man, when, when that, when, you know, like, okay, deer gets hit by a car. All right. Understandable. Uh, there's nothing you can do about that, but then, no, it's not much, but, but then a poacher, right? God damn, yeah. man, that would grind me. That would grind me. If someone poached uh, a deer off my farm, I'd probably be out for blood. 
Yeah. Yeah. Terrible deal. Um, you know, the, and the more you know about the story, the more you hear about it, the, then the more angry you get. If you just happen to find him dead, then, mm-hmm. and I guess that's the situation they were in. They just found him dead kind of thing. So nobody really knows exactly who it was okay. or when it was like that, you know, kind of deal. But still, it's heartbreaking. I mean, those animals come along so infrequently that right. you want to, you want to, you know, know that deer when he was three and then four and then five. And then pretty soon he gets to be 206 and seven and eight, nine. And then you kill him as a 10 year old or something. You know I mean? That's, that's the ultimate uh, scenario that everybody's kind of looking for. And it's very, very difficult to achieve. Very, very tough thing to achieve with everybody out there chasing them. They're, they're just worried. I mean, Colton Hall is a prime example this year. He had a, a beautiful deer. He was hunting and had been hunting. Um, for I believe four years now, he's been on, he called this deer Megatron Yep. and just a beautiful wide giant buck. I'd been down there two separate times and burned uh, footage of him when we were hunting him. He showed up and we got footage of him and weren't able to put an arrow on him, but Colton was, you know, super excited to really hunting this deer and put in uh, special food plots and ponds for this deer in particular. And, uh, here you know right during the season i was getting ready to go down there and film him <clears throat> and all of a sudden him and taryn went out to hunt the stand that he had, one of the stands that he had put in for megatron and he's laying dead next to the pond I'm like, oh my god what happened you know and so they uh get to look in and call dnr agent right away and he came out and checked it out and did kind of a mini autopsy on him and he said well he got gored in the neck by another buck and it pulled his jugular vein out through his neck and bled to death right here on the spot like holy shit man i mean <laughs> and then and you'll see all this you'll see all this on the deer society that that yeah. whole hunt is documented from the start and then i i so then i called colton and i told him hey you know after we had talked about this i said i don't need to come down and film you dude i mean i know your heart broke over megatron and he's like no no you know come on down, you know, we'll, we'll go somewhere. We'll have some fun. So we went to a, a stand that he had killed, uh, previously killed his, uh, he killed a 228 inch deer. And, uh, we, he had killed a lot of that stand. I said, let's go to that stand. Let's go to the Mr. Maybe stand. So we went there and here comes this, he called a couple times the extinguisher and this buck came in and here he's got a broken jaw. We realized as he's coming in, you know, his jaw is completely broken. And it wasn't, uh, you know, a really giant buck, but it, it was a beautiful five-year-old. And Colton decided, hey, with a broken jaw, I'm going to kill him on the spot. I've, I've got to put him out of his misery. And right. So he did. But then, you know, in, in looking at him afterwards, we're realizing, my God, you know, this dude got his jaw broken. It's been broken for at least two weeks, we guess, because his, his in, he had absolutely nothing in his, in his entire intestine. I mean, nothing. They were white. Hmm. He hadn't eaten anything in like two weeks and it just really, really brought it home for us, uh, this year, just what warriors these dudes are and how lucky you are to have a buck. Let's say you have a 200 inch deer that shows up as a four year old or something on your farm, how lucky you are for him to even make it long enough for you to harvest it, you know, with cars and all the other people hunting them and, and, uh, the fighting that they're doing and everything. I mean, it's lucky to that you have the opportunity, you know? Absolutely. So, so going back to like this farm management thing, we got, you know, I yeah. want, I want more deer on my property and I want older bucks on my property. Mm-hmm. What's the next step from there? 
Well, so the next step, like I said, I'm going to try and uh, get on the farm and understand what's there, what we have as resources, because basically, you know, um, your farm has a lot of different resources and a lot of different things that you can work with to increase uh, your carrying capacity for mature bucks in particular and to increase your ability to hunt them. And so getting on the farm, understanding the trees, understanding the lay of the land, how it all works together, and then trying to understand where can I do things that will improve how many uh, mature bucks you have on a farm and how you hunt them. Uh, where are those things located and, and what can we do? Um, number one, the number one uh, framework uh, item that we're using to increase carrying capacity on, on a farm is hinge cutting. Uh, anytime I can, we will do large amounts of hinge cutting on a farm, you know, hundreds and hundreds of trees, if not thousands at times. Um, uh, weed trees that, you know, are not, you know, we're not out there just cutting anything. You're, it, it, the, a lot of times uh, landowners have specific requirements. They'll say, hey, don't cut any oak. Okay, we won't use any oak for hinge cutting. We'll use other things. Um, other times, obviously, almost nobody wants any walnut cut because they're high-value tree, but so we're trying to cut elm and hickory and hackberry and some of these trees that aren't being utilized for the logging industry and put as much food and cover on the ground as possible. And that becomes a framework for the entire farm. Um, and where your tree stands can go and where your food plots uh, and ponds and everything can go all depends on where that hinge cutting can go. So those things have to be designed kind of at the same time those elements okay. <clears throat> and that's what we'll do is design those elements all all kind of simultaneously so that you're not because of what happens if you don't okay i'm going to do a bunch of hinge cutting in here and i'm hinge cutting along and then i realize oh well we just hinge cut past an incredible funnel point in the timber that we could have put a tiny pond and had just you know a ridiculously beautiful setup for mature bucks I have to know where those things are at before we do the hinge cutting. And by the same token, you have to know where your stands are at, you know, where, where they're going to be located, where your hinge cutting goes. Uh, you have to know where the decent hinge cutting is at in order to lay out your stands. So everything kind of has, um, from the, from the beginning and then even ponds and things like that, you know, if, if you've got a bunch of high ground and sandy soil, you know, Hey, it's going to be really tough to put a pond in here. So, that kind of relates as well, how everything works together, you know, but yeah. that's that design, that design element of trying to understand the hinge cutting and the tree stands and your access is incredibly important. Obviously, if you've only got one access on the farm from the west side or something, then that's going to dictate a certain way that that farm is laid out. If you've got access on all four sides of the farm and, you know, none of it shows from a gravel road and things like that. All these things are factors that, that play into the design of the farm and, and how we proceed. So I want to talk to you about ponds a little bit because mm -hmm. I talked with you a while ago and you were you were kind of describing how these ponds work and, and why you're such a you know why you're such a big advocate for building these ponds and we're not talking about really big ponds like you would see out on a farm that you know people would fish you're talking about little small ponds that are designed specifically to have deer stop and drink out of them right yes and other animals obviously to use them and drink out of them as well but uh, yeah, we're doing it for the deer, obviously. And the best way to think about these would be like almost like sand traps on a golf course. I mean, that's what they kind of end up looking like. They're just little pothole bunker type things that they might be four or five or maybe six foot deep, uh, 15 or 20 foot across, something like that. 
relatively steep sides, except for on one side, we will have one side that's angled uh, at a shallow angle so that it puts deer uh, perpendicular to you when they approach the pond when you're in your tree stand. Uh, you can so obviously so they'll be broadside so you can make a good shot on them when they're when they're entering down into the pond. <clears throat> but otherwise, they've got pretty steep sides on them. Uh, trying to eliminate that the mud flats that might lead to some you know the the gnats that carry EHD. Right. Uh, got good luck with that. They don't have we don't have muddy you know muddy flats on the sides of these things. We plant uh, a product I sell called Green Sugar, or you can plant whatever you know whatever your choice is. And you get a perennial type grass type food plot blend that goes right down to the edge of the pond and shades it. Uh, really, really turn out nice. They turn out just beautiful, and the deer just absolutely love them. They're devastatingly effective at putting mature bucks in a really vulnerable place because when you've got a pond like that's in full cover in the timber and you've got all this hinge cut bedding close by, if you've got food plots close by, the bucks just feel like they can approach these things any time of day because they've been doing it all all summer right you know right they walk in they get a drink no one's around they're in full cover and that's the difference you know i mean a, a big pond out in the middle of a field is a completely different scenario from the mentality of a mature buck than when he walks into a tiny 20-foot pond that's in heavy cover in the timber somewhere on you know maybe just on the edge uh they can approach them so stealthy and come and drink and leave and nothing sees them. Nothing. I mean, you just, they're very, very sneaky and they work extremely well for, uh, getting opportunities in mature bucks. Yeah. And that's unique. Cause I, I've never, you know, I've heard about people building ponds, uh, or putting in like, bigger ponds or putting in like water containers in the temp, like out on their farms, but n- never ever in the timber and actually building the pond in there. Now, is this something that you're using terrain features to help you with, or do you get a backhoe in here and basically dig a hole? Um, I, I think the most effective uh, uh, piece of heavy equipment to do it is a skid loader. Um, uh, one of the guys that works for me, uh, Ryan Mesker, runs a skid loader just like a machine, and he can get into the timber and make a pond you know, that, that's in the timber right next to you know, 15, 17 yards from a tree stand location. Because, of course, again, this is – You've got to pick out the location of the pond relative to where your, your your potential tree stand trees are, and you better pick two of them because if you only pick one and it dies, then, okay, now I've got a food plot and I've got this pond and everything else, I have no way to hunt it. So we try and pick at least a pair of good trees so that if one dies, you've got a, a backup. And uh, and he'll pop that pond in there. You know, he might have to uproot one or two trees to do it um, or move, move a couple of them or whatever, but... Um, yeah, and then you put that pond in there, and, and the, the 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 heavier the cover around it, and the thicker it is, and the closer its proximity to that hinge cut bedding area. I mean, the better off you are. They're just really, really nasty. I mean, both my two twenty seven and Colton's two twenty eight came off of tiny timber ponds like that. Yeah, man, that's you nuts. know just because they just feel so freaking secure, you know. Yeah, yeah, and, so- and it's a huge resource too. You know, I mean, you're not. Just think about you and I. Would you would you go camp out on some ridge somewhere that when you got up in the afternoon you had to walk 500 yards to go somewhere and get a drink? Yeah, no. Hell no. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to do that. I'd, well, I'd sit down if it was in good cover. I'd sit down on that pond and sit 100 yards away from it on the downwind side, and just sit there smelling does and smelling which bucks come in and stuff, you know. And that's what they do. Man, so are you trying to put these ponds in? 
specific areas like pinch points or bedding areas or, you know, close to a food source? Right, yeah. So anytime I can, I'll try and stack the odds on that. You know, if we've got, uh, like I was describing earlier, if we've got a, a big funnel trail that's coming through the woods and I realize, hey, you know, we haven't, there, there hasn't been a pond location within 250 or 300 yards of here, then I might think, hey, let's combine this funnel with, we could put, you know, right here at the ravine head funnel that goes around the top of a ravine. We could, we could put a small pond in right here and kind of double down on the effectiveness of the pond and also capitalizing on that ravine, that ravine trail, you know? Yeah. 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 Anytime you can, you can it kind of adds a multiplier, you know? So, right. Now you mentioned your favorite thing to do is hinge cut on the, you know, when designing these farms other, mm-hmm. you know, other than the obvious, you know, you hinge cut to get more sunlight to the, uh, forest floor so that new growth can come up, make it, you know, nasty and make it, better bedding and cover is are there any other benefits for hinge cutting well i i would say you brought up the cover and everything on the forest floor and that's that's a good 50 percent of it but the other 50 percent is food i mean you got to understand these deer pound the snot out of uh twigs and leaves and buds you know not everybody knows it but 60 percent of a white-tailed deer's diet is woody brows yeah. And that is exactly what you're putting on the ground when you hinge cut. You're putting woody shoots and fresh buds on the ground, and they just eat the crap out of them. I mean, I can't even tell you how incredible it's been at times to walk up to things that we hinge cut two or three or four or five years ago and look and realize that, my God, look at the amount of 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 leaves and buds that these deer have been eating off of this stuff this whole time where you can see you, you see what you see is a color change because when they eat the bugs and stuff in the spring off, well, then that leaf has to regrow right there. And when it does, it comes in smaller and it comes in a brighter green. And so you see tree after tree after tree where at right at the four and a half, five foot level, it gets all, everything gets real dark and the leaves are huge and dark. And you're like, what's going on? What, why is that? You know? And then you realize that's because every single bud that could be reached by a white-tailed deer on this freaking tree was eaten. Yeah. And all everything from four and a half foot down is lime green, and the leaves are like an inch long. And everything above five feet is is great big leaves that are five, six inches long, you know, dark green leaves. And you realize, my God, you know, and then you look around, and you realize there's another one, another one, another one. You know, it, it's just, a, it's a, it's a human just a giant food source on on a farm for, and it's also a food source. Remember that has incredible, uh, uh, protein content, um, has incredible mineral content. You know, these, the roots of those trees are dragging nutrients from 15, 20, 25 feet down below the soil. Whereas the crowd, the weeds and things that are on the surface, corn and beans, you know, they're just getting nutrients from the top six or eight inches of the soil. And it's also nutrients, you know, things have been growing in that field over and over, so those are depleted too. So that's why we see, or in my opinion, that's why we see uh, guys time after time, you know, they're, they're talking about, we've never had deer this big on this farm. You know, this is the big, my dad just killed the biggest deer any of us have ever killed in four generations of hunting on this farm, you know, because you've got, all of a sudden, you've got a level of nutrition that they never were able to access before. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and it's not a little bit, you know, it's not like, oh, well, there's three trees and if they want, they can, eat. no, there's like hundreds of them. Yeah. 
it's it's just a gigantic food source, and and that also I you know I know it helps the uh, we see so many twins and triplets. It helps the the does produce milk and helps with survivability. It's just it's a really really good thing for the deer. They love it. So hinge cutting's awesome, obviously, but when you, yeah, really really beneficial. So whether it's a twenty acre farm, a two hundred acre farm, or a two thousand acre farm. Is, is your strategy kind of the same just on a bigger scale or do you change things based off of the size of the farm? Yeah, you, you definitely need to change things based off the size of the farm on, you know, like we did a 2000 up in Wisconsin for Joe Thomas and that's a giant farm. Um, you know, you can create on a farm like that. You can create a different kind of movement. You can focus everything more, a little bit more towards the center of the farm and trying and guarantee that mature bucks aren't going to make it off the farm at daylight hours. Like I, you know, I always tell guys I can't control what they're going to do after dark, but we can certainly try and delay them into not leaving the farm until after dark, you know, until after it's actually too dark to shoot, yeah. which basically saves their lives, you know, because nobody can see them to shoot them. Right. <laughs> but on a smaller farm, you know, if you're designing a 40 acre farm, you know, creating cyclical movement towards the center of the farm to hold all the deer in the farm isn't going to work. You know, you've got to just create uh, uh, complete sanctuaries and areas and try and reduce the pressure on the farm as drastically as you can. So the deer don't have another reason to leave, you know? Yeah. And uh, so yeah, there, there, there are design differences. Um, some of the stuff stays the same, you know, trying to create hinge cut bedding areas with large amounts of food, with ponds close by and great hunting setups that you can access. Uh, you know, that's, that's the other aspect of this. You have to be able to get to that little pond. So the location of the pond relates heavily to how you can access that area too. Cause I don't want to put a pond where a guy can't get to it and hunt it effectively. In fact, we'll, we'll cut ponds that are in the wrong places. We'll cut them out and, and, and move that pond and put it in a place where it's more advantageous for him to get to it. Right. And that makes a lot of sense because over the years, I've learned personally that you can have, you can put a tree stand in the greatest stand location on the farm and trail camera pictures are showing that, you know, tons of deer are working that area and then it's on a, on a certain wind, but it's the wind you need to get to that stand. Right. And so then your access routes blowing, blowing the timber out. Um, and so how how much right. does that play into the design of let's say like uh, because I, I take it you know you're doing all these things but you're also probably pointing out possible tree stand locations for the client as well right yeah the, we'll we'll put a big uh, ribbon uh, that cloth police tape uh, ribbon on the stand so they know exactly which tree it is and the backup tree uh, or even two sometimes there's three trees that will mark. But yeah, the, the the trees are marked, the food plot locations are marked, the pond is marked, everything you know. And then of course they get a like a three foot by four foot, or some guys want bigger or smaller map. Um, and then I give them an electronic map as well um, that has every every aspect of what we're talking about, from the hinge cutting all the way to the access routes, the the food plots, what needs to be in the food plots, how they're organized around the stands and the ponds. Uh, bear, if the barricades, if there's any recommended things like that, that's all on those maps. And, uh, like you said, I mean, it's at the end of the day, it has to be absolutely surgical as far as your entrance and your exit, because the second you start playing around with crappy entrance and exit, well, do you like this sound? 
No. No, I mean, is that a happy sound? No. And, and of course, what are they going to do the second that happens? Andy. Yeah. That son, that son of a bitch told me to walk in right here. And he's nuts. <laughs> you know, so it really has to be laid out correctly. And that's, that's uh, from the get go. That's a super important, I mean, that, that's top priority. You have to understand the accesses before I can even guess that we might have a tree stand location in a particular spot or a pond in a particular spot. Definitely need to understand the the access and what we're going to try and create. I just did a consultation on a farm in North Dakota uh, with some great guys, and they had a gas-powered um, buggy, like a rhino or something. Yeah, and it's very loud. In the process of talking, you know, I'm, I'm asking questions and trying to understand where we're, what we got going on, where we're headed. And I asked, you know, do you guys hunt out of this? Or, yeah, we hunt out of that. Well, the way the farm was laid out, they're driving right up the center of the farm in a loud gas-powered vehicle. And I was like, you know, that is a huge problem. That's a really, you know, you're alerting dozens and dozens and dozens of deer to exactly what you're doing during hunting season. You know, is there any chance that you guys might want to trade this in and possibly get an electric or either that, or we're going to have to come up with a different way where you park on the opposite side of the farm and walk in. And, you know, they, they began to realize like, Oh, you know, well that explains a lot of stuff because they'd have trail camera pictures of a, a particular mature buck on, on a food plot for seven days in a row. And they're going in all excited to hunt him because of course he's going to be there on the eighth day. Well, he never shows up. And then they do it three days later and he was there for the other two days and they go the third day and he doesn't show up. The deer's just listening to you drive in, you know, and then leaving. Yep. Yeah. Well, just sit on his butt. That's all yeah. he has to do, you know, just yep. sit there and wait till dark. And then he comes walking around and sniffs where you walk to your stand and sniffs where, you know, Oh, okay. And they, they immediately pattern that hunter and that's the end of it, you know? Absolutely, man. So other than hinge cutting, uh, you know, and, you know, we put in food plots and stuff like that through your work. Mm-hmm. And how many years have you been doing this? Um, I've been doing it, what, full time, I think, for like eight. Gotcha. I believe I started to go. And I, the first farm I ever started messing around with was 19 years ago. But gotcha. it took a while to roll it into where I could do it full time, you know. Right, right. But, you know, after, from doing this, you've been able to uh, gain a lot of knowledge on how deer respond to, uh, you know, manipulation of terrain and timber and cover and water and food and all that stuff. So have you yes, have you seen a a direct like a, a direct result in that manipulation that uh, has the best possible? Like, let me give you an example, like. If you, you know, uh, how do I put this? Uh, Is hinge cutting better than planting a food plot or is getting a pond in there better than uh, hinge cutting or uh, doing certain things creates better results? Yes. I mean, certainly, yeah. There's there's high value uh, um, improvements to make on a farm. Are you curious about, are you asking, like, what do I think the most high-value uh, yeah. improvements are? Yeah, yeah. Right. So so if I had to qualify that and say, uh, if you were going to do three things on your farm, or if you were going to do two things or whatever, I mean, if I had to list them, um, hinge cutting and ponds are your top number, I mean, number one and two. Uh, food plots would be a, just slightly behind third. I mean, food plots really, really help. Um, uh, hold deer on your property to help 
uh, with nutrition huge on for deer. You know, when you're planting uh, good food plots that have great nutrition, um, that that becomes a year-round big benefit to whitetails. <clears throat> um, so those three things, I think, you know, that that would be the top three on the list for sure. Uh, hinge cutting, ponds, and um, food plots, and then from there. Hmm. What about planting trees, like planting fruit trees? I mean, that's kind of like a food plot, but uh, planting it, a, it kind of is planting it kind a food of is. source. And it's a nice benefit, but no, that would be that would be further down the list. I would yeah. consider that kind of like frosting on the cake. I mean, gotcha. It's a nice thing to have, but it's not uh, super critical. But it is what's nice about planting apple trees is two years, five years down the road, you don't have anything else to do. Once you get them in the ground, they're good to go, you know, whereas yeah. food plot stuff, you're going to be manipulating and having to do chunks of uh, pretty good chunks of work uh, pretty commonly yeah. uh, with tractors and, you know, equipment and things like that. You can go in with a shovel and plant uh, four foot bare root trees, apple trees, and, and put a cage around them uh, by hand and for not a heck of a lot of money and, and, and get benefit out of them for a lot of years, you know, but yeah. Um, they only have really one priority for deer and that is when they're actually dropping apples and they do like apples, you know, quite a lot and they're yeah. nice for that. But What, uh, and we're kind of running out of time here, but from a food plot sure. standpoint, what are some of your favorite food plots, uh, to put in or that you would recommend to some of your clients? Um, yeah, I, I have, uh. I have several mixes that AWS sells, and the reason for that is I was dissatisfied with a lot of what was out there, and I just really felt like, hey, I have to get involved and, and, and work to design the best mixes I can design for the guys that I'm working for, because basically I, I wasn't able to recommend anything decent to anybody and uh, and know that, hey, this is a top-quality product that they're going to be very excited for with the results, you know. Right. And so I began uh, designing food plot mixes and working towards having as many um, good quality mixes as I could that would really perform and perform in the window that we needed to perform, you know. Uh, for us in Iowa, it was October 1st to whatever, let's say December 1st and or beyond in the muzzleloader. <laughs> and so um, we have one that we sell called Green Sugar that is um, – it's a tetraploid ryegrass, and it's got chicory in it. Uh, it's got a couple different kinds of giant leaf white clover. And that blend um, is just fantastic for drawing. It so, has so much moisture in it and so much sugar in the grass that it really, really draws deer well. Uh, we've got another one called Fall Performance. It's more of a turnip radish-type blend. It has oats and winter peas and all kinds of stuff in it. And that's real for... Um, you know, if it gets, starts to get a little colder, those turnips will start really performing. And oats are a really big draw for uh, most deer most of the time. So gotcha. those two mixes, I think, uh, would be, and, and like I said, that's, that's a turnip mix with radishes, winter peas, winter wheat, oats is one of them. And then the other one is uh, tetraploid ryegrass, chicory, and two kinds of giant leaf white clover. Nice, nice. Well, yeah, really good mixes. So... So if let's say a guy has been listening to this today and he wants to get a hold of you to talk about his farm or wants a consultation, how do they get a hold of you? Um, yeah, so I run a Facebook page uh, that's been effective at reaching uh, a lot of people, and then they can also call me on uh, my phone. Uh, you want me to give you my number? Uh, yeah, if, I mean if you want, or sure. Uh, do, yeah, sure. what's the name of the company? 
uh, Advanced Whitetail Systems. Okay, Advanced Whitetail Systems. You can find it on Facebook. Yeah. Do you have a website? Uh, no, I don't. Okay. I, I, just, I, I, I prefer to keep it a little bit smaller just because I don't want to grow. I, I can only find so many people that I can hire that uh, are effective at creating habitat like this, so it's difficult for me to... It would gotcha. be difficult to deal with full on with a website. What's uh what's the telephone number you want people to call? Yeah, it's three one nine seven five nine seven five two four. Perfect. Now I want to end here. Uh you do film for uh a tell it's a television show, right? Yes, sir. Deer Society. Talk to us about what Deer Society is all about. Right. So uh we got involved with Deer Society. Uh, quite a, a few years ago, and the Deer Society developed out of all of our uh, kind of love and enjoyment of filming and documenting um, the techniques that are used to kill mature whitetail bucks and, and the stories involved in it and trying to, to, to document all that and show it to people. Uh, for me, I love, uh, I mean, it's just hugely satisfying to have somebody come up to me and say, hey, you know, I watched your video about how to do an estrus bleak call and i used it and this buck came in and i killed him and they showed me a picture you know and so it's kind of developed out of all that uh, the deer society is a place that that people can go there's a there's a, a big facebook presence and uh we just reached 100 million hits on youtube uh, which is you know shocked me a little bit but it's got a big presence in terms of teaching guys and uh, uh bringing information to uh the hunting world about whitetail deer hunting and and all the techniques used uh, to accomplish it. Awesome, man. And uh, yeah, yeah. if they want to find out, or when is that on TV? Uh, the show on, on TV is called The Deer Society. I, but when's it yeah. launched? Is it on the Sportsman's Channel or Outdoor Channel? Uh, it's, on, it's on Pursuit. Pursuit, okay. Yeah. Uh, all right, and then there's uh, Facebook. Is there a website for that as well? Um. Well, there's the Deer Society Facebook page, and I think there is a there is a website presence as well. I just always hit the Facebook page because it's easy. But gotcha, cool. Well, Mr. Andy Orr, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day uh, and chatting with me. Yeah, man, it's great to talk to you again. Look forward to seeing you soon. And there you have it, man. Huge shout out to Andy Orr. Go check out his business. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time to listen and download this podcast and all the other podcasts on the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. Huge shout out to all of the partners of this podcast, Exodus Trail Cameras, Wasp Broadheads, Lone Wolf Tree Stands, Deer Lab, Prime Archery, Ripcord Arrow Rest, and last but not least, Ozonix. Please go out and support those companies because if you like this podcast, they support this podcast. So, other than that hopefully everybody has a good rest of the week stay focused don't uh don't let bad things happen to you because of lack of focus uh it happens uh so just uh keep your eyes open and your ears open and you should be all right i don't know where where that was going but if you haven't already please check out the sportsman's nation podcast network on the the whitetail feed and the big game feed on itunes or wherever you download and listen to podcasts we're there so uh subscribe to us and like us and spread the word because man we have got a lot going on i didn't even mention this in the intro but i'm going to be starting a vlog i put a little intro video out there and hopefully everybody 
likes it and you're excited because I'm excited to start putting out some additional content, uh, go, if you haven't already, you should go to Facebook and Instagram and follow the Nine Finger Chronicles and follow the Sportsman's Nation and all of the other podcasts and content providers of the Sportsman's Nation. Also, leave a review wherever you download your podcast. Man, those are that's a that's a pre, you know we would appreciate that. I can't talk right now, so I should end this podcast by saying, if you are going out into the timber and you're going to start hanging tree stands, please, for the love of God, people, wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.